Genesis 1, 25 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening And there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray together. Father, you are the reason that we exist. You are the source of our life. You are the source of our identity. God, you are king of creation and you have given us a beautiful identity in you. God, we hear this phrase often, image of God. And our minds and our hearts immediately run to implications of what that means. And these are so important. But God, I pray today that you would teach us from this text. Lord, teach us from this, your, your word to us today. About what this means. About who you are but Lord, about who we are. God, I pray that, Lord, I believe there are people here today who do not understand or do not believe in their dignity or have experienced things in life where someone has robbed them of their dignity. And God, I pray that by the power of the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God, that you would bring healing, that you would bring restoration, and that your people would know that they are loved and you have declared that they are significant. Because it is your word that says that, it is so. So Lord, would you work among us today. May we hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an age-old question that many have undertaken to answer. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Are we merely the apex of the animal kingdom? Like we won the evolutionary lottery and so we advanced so far beyond any other creature and so just lucky to be us. Or are we really that special at all? Maybe humans really aren't all that special. After all, this is the way we talk about ourselves. 
If you fail at something, if you make a mistake, after all, I'm only human. We have this understanding of humanity to be an excuse for weakness, an excuse for failure, an excuse to not be perfect when I believe we know that we should. There are many who believe that we are neither special nor are we unremarkable, but they would say that we are actually a threat to this world. In the original Matrix film, Agent Smith gives his assessment of humanity. I'd like to share a revelation I've had during my time here, he said. It came to me when I tried to classify your species. I realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with their surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to another area and you multiply and you multiply until every natural resource is consumed. The only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There's another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what that is? A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague and we are the cure. If you listen to the way people talk about humanity, if you listen to the way people talk about human civilization and the atrocities that certainly have been committed by humanity, it sounds more like the matrix and less like God's word. It sounds more like we are a plight, a a, a blight on this world and less like what God says that we are. If we look at the world and we see the terrible things done by human beings, it's only natural to ask what's wrong with us. And if we believe the Bible to be true, we could look at the Bible and say, what's wrong with God? that he would get us so wrong, that he would claim that we are something that we are clearly not. Because according to God's word, humans were not just the apex of the animal kingdom, nor are we the enemy of this world. But rather, according to Genesis 1, we are made in the image of God. Now, before we jump into this, I do want to set your expectations. Perhaps... No other doctrine in all of the Old Testament has as many implications for the way that we live our lives, for the way that we treat one another, for the way we care for this world, for the way that we vote in any election that has ever been held throughout the history of democracy. There are no, very few doctrines, if at all, that have as many implications for human life as the doctrine of the image of God. The whole Bible is about God's relationship to his human creation, his special relationship to his human creation because they are made in his image. And so we could spend our entire lives discussing every implication. But today, our goal is this. Our goal is to understand What does this text mean? What does this identity mean for us that we are made in the image of God? Because if we get this right today, then whatever we face 
Whatever issues we face in the world, whatever, whatever uh, 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 decisions we need to make in the ballot box, whatever decisions we need to make to care for this person or that person, to love or to hate, to harm or to heal, every issue that we face in life, if we get this right today, will all come into focus. Today, we need to build the foundation before we try to build the house. And so I want you to think about photographs. When we talk about the image of God, I want you to think about photographs. If I were to show you a photo of myself and ask the question, is this me? There are two answers that would be correct. One is yes. Yes, that is me in that it is not a photo of somebody else. It's a photo of me. That's an accurate reflection of who I am. But at the same time, no, it's not me. It's not literally me. It is only an image of me. And so in the same way, we are uniquely connected to God in that no other species on the planet is said to have been made in God's image. We have a unique connection, a unique reflection. Is that an image of God? Yes, it is. But is it God? No, it's not. We are uniquely connected to God. And at the same time, we are merely a reflection. Derek Kidner is a theologian that I really appreciate. And he says that the idea of God in all of his infinite goodness and beauty, making humans in his own image is like converting a symphony into a sonnet or an epic into a sculpture. Now I got the chance to spend uh, some time studying art history in my life. It was one of my many majors that I declared during this five-year period of running from ministry. Uh, it's like, what's better than ministry? Art history. Okay, I can't even draw. Like, I'm not an artist by any means, but I got the opportunity to study art history, and I came uh, to appreciate specifically a particular sculptor. Uh, his name is Bernini, and I appreciate Bernini because unlike the Renaissance sculptors who Uh, carved images of people posing. Think of Michelangelo's David. He's striking a pose. Bernini captured an action shot, a moment in time, a significant moment in this person's life. And his portrayal of the Greek gods, Apollo and Daphne, is particularly impressive. According to Greek mythology, uh, Apollo was kind of dissing Eros. Um, He was making fun of Eros for his lack of archery skills. And so Eros is furious with Apollo. And so he shoots Apollo with the arrow of infatuation so that he would fall helplessly in love with Daphne, doing anything he possibly could to, 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 to love her. But at the same time, he shoots Daphne with the arrow of repulsion so that she will do anything that she can to get away from Apollo. 
And so as the story goes, Apollo in his infatuation is chasing Daphne. She's running from him. He must have her. She wants nothing to do with him. And so she's so desperate that in this moment, right before Apollo is able to, to catch up to her and grab her, she prays to her father that he would turn her into a tree. And so Bernini has sculpted this moment in time as she in desperation is rooting her legs into the ground. Her skin is becoming bark. Her arms and fingertips becoming branches and leaves. And it's this, be- it's this, it's this beautiful sculpture. Now, I-, I would show the picture, but Bernini apparently wasn't good at sculpting clothes. So we're not putting that up here. Would not be proper for church. But if you look at this sculpture, if you see the sculpture, some of you have seen it. If you look at this sculpture and you don't have any other context, does that sculpture tell you everything about the story? No. But does it invite you in? Does it represent its essence? Does it make you ask, if you look at that, what is this about? It absolutely does. We can't help but ask, what is this about? And in the same way, humanity is the image of God. It isn't possible to know the entire character of God or the entire story of God by looking at one of our lives or even looking at the totality of the human race. But we can live in such a way that draws others into the story, that draws others in and causes them to want to know, tell me what this life is about. Tell me what this God is about. We can be like that sculpture that that we can't make sense of what's happening, but there is an entire story. There's an entire epic. There is a God behind the image that we can know. And so as the image of God, humanity can never reflect God exhaustively, but we should reflect him truthfully. In fact, this is our purpose, to be a picture of what God is like in order to draw others into communion with the real thing. But if we are to live in a manner that shows people what God is like, then we need to ask the question, what is God like? What then is God like that I should look like him? And so I want to ask you for a moment to suspend your notions, to suspend your your preconceived ideas about who God is. I know many of you know your Bibles very well. We're just in the first chapter in Genesis. Many of you know everything from Genesis to Revelation, and you know every doctrine there is to know about God. I just want you to put that on pause for a second. Because the author of Genesis has given us everything we need to know in this first chapter in order to understand what he's saying and what this means. And so we need to understand it from the perspective of someone living in the ancient Near Eastern world. Now, this may come as a shock to some of us, but the Bible did not invent the phrase image of God. The Bible did not invent the concept 
of a human being being made in the image of God. See, people in the ancient Near East would have been familiar with things that look like this. This is a sculpture from ancient Mesopotamia where the Babylonians ruled. Um, it's, it's, it's called a Lamassu. And it is an image of a god. This is an image of their god. It is a, a physical representation of one of their deities. Now, the Bible has a different name for things like this. They're called abominations. Uh, they're, they're called idols, right? An idol is a physical representation of a false deity, an image of a god. But this wasn't the only understanding of the phrase image of God in that world. Let's go back to the, the, the picture really quickly. See the head on the statue? It's not a random human face. That's the face of the king. That's the face of the human king in authority over the people at that time in Mesopotamia. The king was also believed to be the image of the God. See, the people believed that uh, humans were created to be slaves of the gods, that they worked the ground to produce food and they fed the gods. They served the gods. That was their existence. That's why they, they, they lived. They were slaves. But the gods had endowed the king with the dignity of being made in the god's image. The king was the image of that god. And it's the image that gave that king his authority to rule. And so the king was not equal to those he ruled. He was God's image. And so he ruled on earth as a God. We see this not only in ancient Mesopotamia, but we see this in Egypt. We see this in the Akkadian empire. We see this in that world where the Israelites would have been existing and, and in the cultures that oppressed them. There was this idea already of the king being God's image. And so imagine living in that world. Imagine living in, in a world where you exist to serve the gods. That's your sole purpose for living. You exist to serve the gods and you serve the gods by serving the king. And he's not just one of you. He's greater than you. And the gods have made it clear. Because anyone that tries to come up against that king has been defeated. And so the gods have established him and you owe him your life. And so you live to slave yourselves to this God, sorry, this king who says he's a God. But then someone comes to you with the book of Genesis and says that you were made in the image of God. You would absolutely interpret those words to mean that you were royalty, that you are a king or a queen. You would immediately understand it in the context of this God who made humanity, entrusting you with the authority to rule. You are not a slave. 
you have a royal identity. This identity, this this royal identity is rooted in God's own identity as the king of creation. See, I said that we have all the context that we need in Genesis 1 to understand what's happening here and what the image of God is. Throughout Genesis chapter 1, God's depicted as the king of the universe who rules by his word. He, He declares a royal edict that something should be and then it is. Let there be light and there was light. Let the waters be separated, and then they were separated. Let the land produce vegetation, and then there was vegetation. Let this be done, and then it was so. He's like a king on his throne, declaring what should be, ruling by his word, and it is executed exactly to his specific intentions. In the first three days, God uses his word to bring order to this dark, chaotic world simply by saying that it should be so. This is what it looks like. The first three days of creation, God ordering the world, light and dark, sky and sea, land, putting order to the chaos. This is what it looks like to have dominion. This is what it looks like to rule and subdue something. It means to impose your will upon something, to have a desire for something to be and to make it happen. Now, when we think of the word subdue or imposing your will upon something, we often think of uh, in terms of war or violence or oppression or abuse or some harmful thing. But I don't want us to think of this in terms of war or violence. There's no war or violence in Genesis 1. God is simply imposing his will on creation. Don't think of war or violence. Think of it like gardening. If you want to produce a crop, if that is your will, then you are going to have to exert force upon the land to bring order to the land so that the land can produce a fruit, to produce crop, to bring it to its full fruitfulness. And this is what God is doing. In the first three days of creation, day one, two, and three, he is ruling and subduing creation so that it can thrive. But then in days four and six, four through six in creation, God's royal edict, his his word is to command those domains of heavens and sky and sea and land to be filled with lights and life. On day one, he creates light. On day four, he creates the lights in the sky. On day two, he creates the sky and the sea. On day five, he creates the birds and the fish. On day three, he creates the land. On day six, he creates the animals that fill the land. You see the parallel there? Days one, two, and three, he is ruling and subduing. Days four, five, and six, he is filling the world with life. And so God in Genesis 1 is a king who is ruling and subduing and filling the earth. Again, I don't want us to miss this. Genesis 1, God is a king who is ruling and subduing and filling the earth. And now look at verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means we were made to do the things that God has been doing. 
We were made to do the things that God is doing in creation, to rule the world the way God has already been ruling the world, to partner with him by establishing order, subduing the world so that the world is filled with life. Again, ruling and subduing, having dominion doesn't mean oppressing. It doesn't mean exploiting. Humans are not taskmasters. We are gardeners. We are cultivators. Caring for the soil and planting seeds so that all of God's creatures are provided for. That's what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2. And in submission to God, trusting God, living under his authority, we do the things that God has been doing to bless creation. And when we do, we allow for the world to see a glimpse of the invisible God. When we do the things that God has been doing, creation is able to look at humanity, so to speak, and say, this is what God is like. Oh, that thing that they're doing, making us to flourish, that's what our creator did. They're, they are a reflection of the king of creation. And as we multiply, as we're fruitful, as we make babies and fill the earth, God's images go out to every corner of the planet. And the intention was to take the fruitfulness of Eden and make the whole planet to be that fruitful by ruling and subduing, by ordering, by imposing the will of God upon the earth and bringing flourishing. And this means that the image of God is not only about our identity. It's not only about a royal identity as kings and queens, but also you have a sacred calling. You have a royal identity as a human being and you have a sacred calling. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone is called to vocational church work. That's what we think of, a sacred calling. God's calling you to be a minister of some sort. That's not what this is talking about. It means that when humanity puts the image of God on display through the most basic elements of life, work and family, when we function with care and compassion and cultivate the world through our work or our family, whether you are a literal gardener, an artist, a musician, a construction worker, an accountant, whatever it is, when you take something that is not what it should be, whether that's finances or rubble or whatever it is, and you make it what it should be, you are partnering with God in creation. When you uh, uh, build families, whether your own family or you invest in the families around you to bring flourishing, to, to, to bring the dignity of the image of God in those human beings. We are partnering with God to ensure his will for this world is taking place. And when we do that, in the most basic elements of life, work and family, rule and subdue, fill the earth, 
When we do that, we serve as reminders of God's own presence in the world. So there's something else happening in this text that deserves our attention. This word image. Okay, we talked about the statues of the gods as representing the God who reigned there. Um, But I think it's very interesting that God uses this word for his human creation. The the Hebrew word is tselem, and it just means image. We were created in the tselem of God. But this word shows up frequently in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And most often, it is associated with idols, graven images, like the one that we looked at earlier. These graven images were believed to contain the God's presence, the God's essence, so that somebody looked at the idol, the tselem, and they were reminded of God's rule, God's authority, uh, whatever that, that, that God stood for. They were reminded of that God's power and presence in their lives. But God strictly forbids his people from making selims. God strictly forbids his people from making idols of him or anything else in creation, any other God or, or any other created thing. We're not supposed to make idols. We're not supposed to make images of God. And yet here at the very beginning of the Bible, God makes an image of himself. God makes a tselem of himself. See, the reason God's people were not allowed to make images of God is because God had already made images of himself. The reason he doesn't want us to look at statues of created things to represent his presence, like a golden calf in the Exodus story, is because we're already supposed to look at each other and be reminded of God's essence, be reminded of God's presence. We are images of God. We are reminders of God's presence and his character, his power, his authority, his rule in this world. Creation is supposed to be able to look at you and experience God's presence. So you were made to be like God. You were made to do the things that God does. In submission to him, in obedience to him, you were made to function in this world the way God is seen functioning in this world in Genesis 1. No, you don't have his power, but he's delegated his authority to his image bearers to function in this way, to rule and subdue, to fill the earth so that the whole world will be drawn into communion with the creator God. You were made to be like God. Human beings, as we live in light of these divine identities, these royal identities, this this sacred calling, as we go about our days working and building families, people are supposed to look at us and be able to say, this is what the God of the Bible is like. That's it. I wanted to know God, but thank God I know a human being because I can look at that human being and see what God is like. Right? Right? That's what it says. That's what we're supposed to do. So let me ask you, should anyone look at your life and say that? Should anyone look at your life, who you are in public and in private? Would you, Christian, want anyone to look at you and say, ah, 
I understand the God of the Bible now. Something's gone horribly wrong, right? Something has gone horribly wrong with humanity. Something has gone terribly awry with the image of God. Rather than looking like something that could be called God, we look like something, I don't know what, much worse. Rather than ruling and reflecting God in the world, the humans rebelled against God and established an alternative kingdom. We'll get into that in Genesis chapter 3. They were, they were already more like God than they could possibly imagine. You are already more like God than you can possibly imagine. But they wanted the one thing that God didn't share with them. The ability to define for themselves the difference between good and evil. And so the serpent enters the garden and deceives the humans and made them to believe that apart from that ability, they would never truly be like God. And so they ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they cast off God's rule over their lives. And the irony is that though they were already like God, in an attempt to become something greater than merely human, they end up living like animals. You turn the page. Brother is killing brother. Violence is filling the world. Violence is celebrated. Oppression is rampant. We'll get to a point where God says that all of the thoughts of the hearts of man were only evil continuously. In trying to become something more than human, humans end up living like animals building kingdoms for themselves at the expense of anyone in their path. And so the responsibility to rule and subdue that was supposed to be a partnership with God, the, this responsibility that was supposed to be nurturing and life-giving, ends up being uh, imposed upon creation, not like a gardener, but like a conqueror. And instead of cultivating the world and filling it with life. The world was exploited. The world, the, the humans were oppressed and the world was filled with violence and death and wickedness. That's the, that's the story of Genesis 3 through 11. But here's the most heartbreaking part of the problem. Though human evil looks nothing like the character of God, looks nothing like the character of God, human beings still cannot be separated from God's image. It's who we are. Even after the fall, the image of God continues to be affirmed in humanity. The image of God is not lost. It's tarnished, but it's not lost. And so when creation is pillaged and exploited, it's done by the image of God. And when humans are wounded and wronged and oppressed. It's done by the image of God. So why does the non-believing world look at God and think that he's violent, selfish, corrupt, oppressive? It's because that's what they see in the image of God. That's what they see in creation. This is heartbreaking. That we don't just image God when we're good, but we're telling the world through our sin that God is something different than he is. 
And so the reflection of God becomes like looking in a funhouse mirror. We no longer look anything like God, and so we slander him by our sin. God's royal family exploiting his subjects, God's sacred officials desecrating his temple. So there's a fundamental uh, idea in the world that sin is breaking God's law. But human sin is not breaking God's rules. It's slandering God's reputation. It's breaking God's reputation in the world. So God made us to show the world what he's like. And if we give the world a false image, then that's what they're going to think God is like. It's like a game of telephone. Imagine a family sitting down and playing that game of telephone and a father whispers into his oldest child's ear, I love you. And then it goes to the next child and the next child and the next child and the next child, however many children this dude has. By the time it gets to his youngest child, it's been distorted along the way to a violent, hateful rejection of this youngest son. Can the father ignore that and let his kid believe that this was his actual message? Absolutely not. He he must defend his child. He must build his child up. He must restore his child's identity in the family by clearing his own name. The father has to clear his name and say, I would never say that. That's not who I am. That's not what I said. He would have to discipline the, 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 the ones that, that corrupted such a beautiful message into such a vile message for the sake of the hearts of his children. He must clear his name. And this is the good news, church. This is the good news that God has cleared his name. God has come to put right what we have made wrong. See, Jesus Christ is the truly human one. Jesus Christ is the only one who was ever perfectly human. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The eternal son of God, the one who all things were made by and for, became like us. He was made in our image. He was made in our likeness so that the image and likeness of God could once and for all finally be seen in humanity. That there was a man on the earth that we could look at and see God. Jesus is not only truly God, but he is the only one who has ever been truly human. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews 1.3 says, or as Colossians 1.15 and 19 say, he is the image of the invisible God. Know for certain that's exactly what was on Paul's mind when he wrote that. The image of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus lived 
perfectly as God's image in this world, which means he exercised rule and authority. Jesus ruled and subdued creation. How? How did Jesus rule and subdue creation? Calmed the storm with what? With a word. He healed the sick and the lame, brought order back to their bodies and to their minds. How? With a word. He exercised dominion over rival kingdoms by casting out demons. How? With a word. Jesus is the creator God, ruling and subduing in this world as a truly human being empowered by the Holy Spirit. He has dominion in the world and shows us what it means to be fruitful and multiply. How? Not through procreation, but through discipleship. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All the authority has been delegated to the truly human one. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations everywhere, every corner of the earth, fill the earth with disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, teaching them to do the things that I have done and teaching you to do. You see this? It's the Great Commission. It's the New Testament's version of the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue. And so by following Jesus and submitting ourselves to his authority, the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden is undone. They took the crown off of their heads and they put it on the head of the serpent so that even Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. We were made to rule this world and we gave the crown to the enemy by submitting ourselves to the snake. But when we trust in Jesus, the truly human one, the second Adam, we are ransomed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. We're no longer a part of that domain. We're no longer a part of the kingdom of sin. We are a part of a new kingdom, the kingdom of the son, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Our royal identity is restored and we are once again able to represent God and his kingdom in this world. And therefore Jesus not only fulfills our royal identity, he fulfills our sacred calling. If you want to know exactly what God is like, then look to Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. If we want to know exactly what God is like, then look to Jesus. And if you want to know whether or not he is able to restore God's image in you, you say, yeah, that's great, Adam. Thank you. I was made in the image of God and I blew it. And so now Jesus gets to be the image of God. Whoop-de-doo. But Jesus came not to just be the image, but to restore the image in you. That's why God made you. That's what God wants from you. He wants you to look like him. Far be it from God to not have his way. He has dominion. He rules and subdues. He imposes his will upon his creation for the good of his creation. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And if you want to know for certain that the image of God can be restored in you, 
than look to the cross. As truly human, Jesus receives the penalty for our rebellion and as truly God, he is able to remake us in his image. In Christ, we're not only restored to God, but you are restored to your humanity. Being a human is not weakness. Being a human being is not to be the enemy of this creative world. Being a human being is the most beautiful thing in this world. Because there is lots of things in this world that will remind us of God and who he is and what he has done. But there is nothing in this world that God has made in his image, in his likeness. Jesus can restore your humanity so that you, your life, can look like God. So that the church can look like God. So that people can look at the way we live and the way that we worship and the way that we love and have compassion and are generous. They can look at our lives in public and in private and say, I think I get it now. God of this world is beautiful. Creator of heaven and earth is generous. I want to know that God's story. I want to know who that is. See, Jesus is is more than a, a statue of an epic, like Apollo and Daphne. Right? Jesus' life tells the story of God. If you want to know what God is like, God is like the Father who sent his Son to die for the sins of the world and to send his Holy Spirit to empower us to live like God once more. He's the God who makes people in his image who are able to tell his story. So if you're here and you're a believer, you're here and you're a Christian, know this, that you are the work of the master craftsman to bring him glory in the world. Therefore, go. And in the ordinary things of life, in work, in family, and friendships, and recreation, and the way you enjoy this world that God has made in the ordinary things of life. Glorify your Father in heaven by being fully human, in union with Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, rule with Christ by serving in love and compassion, and be fruitful and multiply. Make disciples by telling God's story. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of who you are and can't possibly fathom how we in our frailty and finiteness could possibly point to you. And yet your word says that it is true that in Christ, the image of God is restored in us. God, as I prayed at the beginning of this, I pray again, if there's anyone here who does not understand the dignity and the value, and the beauty that you have given them. God, I pray that they would see your love for them in the face of Jesus. That Jesus has come, he has died, he has been raised again, so that they might know what it means to be remade in the image of God, full of beauty and dignity and value and significance.
and they would use that beauty and dignity and value and significance not to exalt themselves, but to give the same beauty and dignity and value and significance to everyone else in their lives and tell them that it is because of who our creator is. God, I know that one day when you return, we'll see you face to face and your church will be made new. Your people will be purified and we will once and for all be the images of God that we were made to be. And in the meantime, Lord, let us cling to that promise and receive in us today by the power of your spirit, the ability to show this world a glimpse of what God is like. God, stir up in us worship and gratitude because all that we are was made by you and all that we will be will be your work and your power in us. And so may we cast ourselves at your feet even now as we worship. Lord, stir up our hearts to give you the praise and the glory that you and you alone deserve. We ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. And all God's people said, amen.